0: Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm Director of MTF Labs, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now if you find yourself on Instagram, and you're looking for something other than the children, pets and meals of friends and family, the privileged lives of the famous, the heavily filtered images of people who are good at wearing clothes, or if you're like me, vintage hi-fi gear... Then you might find yourself looking at generative visual art and as you scroll through the abstract designs hypnotic pulses and seizure inducing strobes you might see something that looks almost but not quite like a crossbreed between a penguin and a fluorescent blue slug or an anatomically unlikely cicada a fractal parrot a melty squid or a patchwork butterfly? If so, then chances are you've found the art of Berlin-based AI artist, Sofia Crespo. With the help of machine intelligence, Sofia creates artificial life. She joined us to do that at MTF Aveiro in Portugal last year, and she started collaborations with other MTFers. Not so much to play God, but to mangle the theology of the metaphor, maybe to act as one of his elves in the living organism toy workshop. Okay, this all breaks down a little bit, but you get the idea. She uses thinking computers to make what you might call speculative creatures, and then she kind of brings them to life. Sophia Crespo, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast. I was going to say how you're doing, but you're not doing very well.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm a bit ill right now, but... Nevertheless, thank you so much for having me here.
0: You're welcome. And you're a hospital escapee.
1: <laughs> I am. You, yeah. you have to
0: tell that story.
1: <laughs> I I left the hospital yesterday. I got very anxious after being there for eight hours waiting and alone in a room in isolation. I feel terrible for the hospital staff, though. And the police came looking for me, and it was the first <laughs> First time running away from a hospital for me.
0: It's good that yeah. you can laugh about it, and that I know you say you're you're unwell, and but you're tested negative for COVID. Uh, you have a bit of a fever, yes, but you're not bleeding to death or anything like that.
1: No, but I'm worried that I might have tuberculosis.
0: Oh really? Oh my god.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of something that is also a first. I have kind of all the symptoms, but I haven't been tested for it. Wow. Yeah.
0: And that's why they were Uh, quite keen for you to stay in the hospital.
1: Yeah, because they, well, mainly because of COVID, because they were worried that I have COVID. But uh, I was in the ER station, so they don't do TB tests there. They were just worried about something like very acute. But, yeah, it's strange. The only things I know about tuberculosis are that it's a very old disease that used to kill a lot of people back in the day.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah.
1: Before there was a cure.
0: I mean, the only thing I know about it is that you're meant to take it seriously. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, you seem fine, but I'm not a doctor.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why I went to the ER on the first place. But it's a strange time to have that because, obviously... Covid is the main priority
0: right now as a health emergency. So wow, well, I really, I really hope you're okay. It puts a slightly different <laughs> slant on the the whole interview. But let's oh as, let's assume you're okay, and start with <laughs> what you do is you make artificial life. I do, which is to say, you're an artist that uses AI to create, I guess, living creatures. Do you want to, you know, what does that mean? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, well, in a way, it kind of depends. There are many things to unpack, like what, how do we perceive life? What do we see as life and where does life even begin for us? So what I do is just things that kind of simulate on a very high level, so to say, what life looks like to us on a, when digitized. So I'm kind of exploring that threshold of where human perception sees something that looks alive and how all those patterns are recognized by our brains. So that's the bit that I'm really interested in. And when we look at an image, for example, how can we tell, okay, this looks like this image contains life or a life form or something that looks like what I know could be alive in the natural world. And there's a threshold between knowing what that thing is and not knowing, not being able to match it to something specific. And I love that place, kind of like an uncanny or visual indeterminacy.
0: Well, when I went to high school, which was a very long time ago, there were these things that we were told about how you know if something has life. And it was like it moves, it responds, it it breathes for the most part but you could say that looking at a cartoon of an imaginary creature Uh, like somebody could just draw something and over several frames make it appear to do those things what's different about what you do
1: so i don't draw things by hand Uh, i'm terrible at drawing (laughs) so i use an algorithm or several algorithms not a single one but to be assisted, like a generative workflow, I'm really interested in the automatization of processes. So how as artists, we don't need to anymore do something by hand, but we can code or create an algorithm or reuse an algorithm that somebody else created and use it to automatize a process such as creating a pattern. So. What I can do is create the data set instead of creating the image or painting the image. I make a data set of hundreds or sometimes thousands or sometimes even hundreds of thousands of images. And then I train a machine learning model based on that. And then I can tell to that model, okay, now generate a one-hour video or a 30-second video or 10-hour video. (laughs) yeah
0: so you start when you say you start with like a hundred thousand images, these are images of a particular creature type or yeah yeah so it depends on what
1: uh, so for example, like recently I trained two models, one on caterpillars and another one on butterflies and I wanted to kind of create a transition between caterpillars and butterflies to kind of see like how, to visually explore that transition of how a caterpillar gets its whole body reassembled inside of the this cocoon and then kind of everything liquefies to become a butterfly and be able to fly and live a completely different stage of their life. So for that, I made two data sets and I trained two models and then I made them connect to each other, to transition from one to another in the kind of closest visual reference that they have. So yeah, that's basically, that's That's one example of what
0: I... Sure. I'm really interested. Is it the biological life that you're interested in, or is it the kind of the intellectual life of the machine when it processes those things and comes up with its own version?
1: So. I'm interested in both things actually uh, from the algorithmic perspective I'm interested in how we developed neural networks based on neuroscientific research kind of inspired by neuroscientific research and the idea that neurons are interconnected and there's that that's the whole point is that they build a network to transfer information from one to another and that there's a larger kind of emergence that happens from that interconnectivity between each single neuron. So from that perspective, I find it fascinating that we managed to kind of extract a model of an algorithm and that we can use it now for like computer science and artistic applications. So that's one thing. But then on the other hand, I'm really interested as well in biology and to learn about nature And also biology as a human study, how we created biology, like biology is a human created thing to understand and kind of organize, make sense of the natural world. So I also think that's a fascinating thing to learn about.
0: For sure. So your interest is in both the sort of the the computer generated life idea but also the, the exploration of biology for, also for your own interest. What is it you think that people who look at your images and look at your videos should get out of it? Are you trying to communicate something to them? Is there something that people say that they get out of it? Are you not interested in that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I guess to some extent, what I want to communicate is intuitive. So part of it, I say like, okay, this is what I want to talk about. I want to open a dialogue about this. And sometimes I just do something and I don't really know why, but it feels right to do that. (laughs) And I love having a dialogue with people when they see the work. I think that an artwork is not just made of one part, like the creator doing it. It's made of two parts, like the person observing it. And that's why I think it's so important to see art as a human thing. We consume art and art is made for us to consume. We don't make art for another for an algorithm to consume, at least yet. So
0: or another species for that matter.
1: Exactly. Yes, exactly. Or another species. Interesting. And I think, well, a lot of the times people find patterns that I didn't see there before. So people say like, oh, there's a rabbit there in the middle of this picture. And I'm like, where? and they have to help me find it. And I love that, like how different minds see things and find patterns. That's kind of like one of the most rewarding things for me to interact with other minds in that way.
0: Are you a computer scientist who makes art or are you an artist who uses computer science?
1: I, I'm an artist who uses computer science.
0: Very much yeah. art, at the, art at the forefront. So you could be an yeah. artist who uses other tools is what you're saying. Definitely, definitely. Right. Because at um, MTF in Aveiro last year, you joined us and you collaborated with some people and it became a musical performance and uh, a kind of a responsive video. Is, is music a kind of an element of, uh, of what you do and, and in what way do you think about it it being included in that dialogue between the biology and the, and the algorithm?
1: It's fascinating, like I I am not a music artist myself, but it's something that in the past years I've been feeling more and more interested in from the collaborative perspective, working with music artists and kind of hearing the world the way they hear it, or kind of, it's a different medium, it's a different way of perception of the world, and I love Kind of the combination of visual and sound together so somehow my work feels a lot more complete when i work with music artists or sound artists yeah
0: fantastic well it seems like your medium is also instagram and th- this is somewhere where <laughs> yes, your work definitely. kind of has a natural fit was that sort of a, a platform just ready made for somebody like you
1: Uh, I think, okay, so I wasn't feeling that comfortable with Instagram before the whole COVID pandemic happened. I was kind of shy. I used Instagram, but the whole situation of not being able to interact with people so often kind of pushed me to look for a channel where I felt comfortable. And Twitter makes me anxious even though there's lots of interesting things, like there's also a very engineering-focused approach to machine learning, and that kind of makes me anxious because many times I share something and it's all seen as a technical demo rather than art, and that kind of isn't what I want to do. And so on Instagram, there's more of an artist community, and there's more of a... I found a more positive community and supportive so i think i had to adapt myself to instagram more than instagram being made for someone like me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm quite shy so i had to kind of make an effort to stay engaged and share and eventually became rewarding actually
0: well for somebody who's quite shy you do seem to collaborate Do you want to talk about how you work with, uh, I'm thinking of Felican uh, in particular, Felican McCormick, and how you work with him and how that sort of uh, collaboration and other collaborations, how that works for somebody like you?
1: Yeah. So we actually originally met on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram too. We kind of connected there and I saw his work uh, with photogrammetry. He was back in two years ago, scanning like a series of trees. And I thought that was amazing. He was cutting really old trees, like thousand years old, and kind of opening up a conversation about how these trees have seen several generations of humans living and kind of giving them an archive like a digital archive. And when we met, that was one of the first things we started talking about how are we archiving nature, how are we digitally representing nature and it was kind of a natural thing. Like he, I introduced him to machine learning and he immediately clicked with it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then suddenly it was, suddenly he was teaching me things. So yeah. So eventually we started this studio together called Entangled Others. And the whole idea of that studio yeah. is to create a space for representing biodiversity digitally and to open up a conversation of around new technologies and biodiversity. And yeah, and it hasn't reached me so much to the point that now I don't imagine working in a non-collaborative way anymore. It feels kind of, uh, I love collaborating with people and we've been kind of making a team. We're trying to include more and more people to it.
0: So yeah. <laughs> as far as the biodiversity thing is concerned, do you see your work as part of an ecological campaign? Are you trying to do awareness raising or bring people's attention to particular issues in ecology or, or things like that? Or does it just happen to be about species of animals that may or may not exist?
1: Yeah. So When it started, so the message has been kind of evolving in a way. When it started, it was more about the joy of visual joy of the natural world. And then eventually it became more opening a conversation about how we exist in relationship to others, how we exist in ecosystems, not as isolated creatures, but then also opening the conversation about how machine learning and new technologies are being used. So how AI isn't this thing that is just kind of biased and categorizing humans and used for evil, so to say, <laughs> and how these technologies have applications to, and have potential to open up a conversation about these things that kind of in the media, from what we see in the media, seem unimaginable at first. So that kind of became our goal to use, to kind of appropriate these technologies for representing nature digitally.
0: I'm kind of wondering how you get to the point where you are somebody who makes artificial life for a living and, and you know, what the, what the journey <laughs> is that takes you there. What sort of kid were you, for instance? And here's an interesting thought. What did your parents do and has that had any effect on on where you've ended up?
1: Oh definitely my parents have been such a big influence so my mom is an environmental law researcher she researches how companies like big companies have an impact on the environment and laws of deforestation etc and my dad is a former sea captain so he used to go on very very long trips around the world when I was little and he brought me things from different parts of the world and told me all these stories about the sea and eventually I kind of ended up doing something that's a blend of both in a way. I have this fascination with the sea and with sea creatures and at the same time also this concern about the environment and the more kind of critical thought that my mom taught me.
0: <laughs> and where did the art thing come from?
1: Yeah, I think originally it became kind of a way of coping with the world. I think that I, I was a little bit depressed when I was younger and art became my way of coping, like a place where I felt really liberated. And originally it was a form of self-expression. I was writing a lot, I used to write poetry and then like short stories and then it all became kind of existentialist writing for a while. And then I, <laughs> I used to have like an open kind of blog where, where I wrote my thoughts. Then I went to university for literature for two years and then I dropped out because I wanted to live somewhere else in the world. And then I moved to New Zealand and eventually to Europe and ended up in Germany for
0: the longest. What was the starting point? Where were you originally going to university doing literature?
1: I was going to university in Buenos Aires. That's where I'm where I come from from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I was very interested in philosophy and history of art and Yeah, I was. uh, I loved reading and kind of thinking about existentialism, I guess.
0: (laughs) Back then, I was 18. (laughs) From that, New Zealand seems like a strange choice. What took you? I mean, I'm from there. So, what took you there?
1: (laughs) Well, what took me there was that back then there was a working holiday visa for Argentinians, and there was kind of a community around that and also it was a very far away place and i wanted i was a teenager still so i wanted to kind of go somewhere very far away sure. <laughs> that was still safe and where i could kind of take some time and be with nature and i didn't get the working holiday visa at all but i ended up going anyways <laughs> and it was an amazing time
0: where did you go, just out of curiosity? This might not even make it into the podcast. I'm just curious. <laughs> what, what was your favorite part and why is it Auckland?
1: Oh God, it wasn't Auckland at all. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> um, I think my favorite part, oh my God, there are so many amazing places that I've been to. I remember, well, I was in Auckland for a very short time. <laughs> That's where I landed. Yep. And then I went directly to, what was the name? Oh, God, it started with T.
0: Well, there's lots, Tauranga?
1: Tauranga, yes. Yeah. I went there with a sub-volcano. Oh, God, the volcanoes were amazing. And uh Rotorua I think Rotorua was my favorite place because it's all volcanic like it has this very strong smell when you arrive there yeah. and there was also a family that kind of adopted me it was a bit crazy this uh family of uh Mari lady married to a Scottish man and they really they they became my grandparents <laughs> in a way like
0: <laughs> that's fantastic it's such a lovely yeah. part, Rotorua has, you know, I, that's something I can believe happens there. But you're right, the sort of yeah. the, the um, geothermal activity there, the, I can kind of see the bubbling mud pools almost in the exactly. work that, you've, uh, that you've, you've created. Some of the work that you did in Aveiro, which was based on local life forms, but it has this kind of bubbling quality to it where it kind of moves and thrives. I like that that's part of the story. But then you went to, you're in Berlin now, is that correct?
1: Yes, now I'm in Berlin and I've been here the longest. I think when I moved to Germany, I really liked that Germany, well, at least for somebody who comes from Argentina, it seemed like a much more feminist country to live in. And kind of when I arrived to Berlin, I felt like liberated, like this was a place where I could be, I could be an artist, if I wanted to, and nobody would judge me for it. And I could be unemployed for a while and figuring out what to do with my life if I wanted, and nobody would judge me for it. So, so for somebody who at the time I was completely broke, didn't know what to do, and I needed a supportive space. Berlin kind of seemed welcoming and interesting. So, and I ended up staying here.
0: And there's certainly no shortage of interesting people to work with there.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: That's really interesting. Let's go back to your work for a bit. The fact that you're a digital artist and the things that you make are all in the digital domain. I wonder if you see gallery exhibitions or photography books or anything like that, these sort of like tangible things as Mm -hmm. a valid expression of your work. Are you interested in doing those sorts of things?
1: Definitely. We also had this year we opened up an exhibition where we unfortunately couldn't go to see in person but we made a sculptural piece so and i i'm really really fascinated in the kind of transformation of a digital piece onto a physical one so something that i've been working on as well i also worked with the cyanotype technique which is a very old technique for printing like one of the first printing techniques that existed from the 19th century and i use it to print the pieces that i generate with machine learning so there's kind of a cross between like a really new technique that you can only do use now with a very very old way of printing.
0: Hmm. And of course, the sort of the conversation around digital art right now is about NFTs. Is this something that mm. you've uh, become interested in or that you're exploring?
1: Yeah. So we started putting NFTs out there, I think, well, a few years ago, I think in 2019 were the first ones. But then lately, it's there's been a very large discussion about environmentalism and NFTs, And I'm kind of torn between both things. On one hand, I really care about the environment and I really care about the CO emissions. But on the other hand, I really care about the artists and how they've been affected by the pandemic situation. And I think that it's really important to not shame artists for putting their work for sale. So that's kind of I stand somewhere in the middle where I think like it's really important to allow artists to sell their work. And I think that artists are usually a vulnerable part of society because to make art, you're supposed to create without an intent of selling. (laughs) There's all this kind of uh, societal baggage that gets thrown at artists. And at the same time, you're also not supposed to sell your art digitally because that's polluting or whatever. So there's kind of a very high moral bar for artists in a way.
0: For sure. Do you wanna just for people who haven't uh, been following this closely, do you want to do you have a, a, a sort of a short description of what NFTs are and how they work?
1: Yeah, NFTs are basically uh, using a smart contracts or like a blockchain protocol to sell so you can monetize out of a digital piece because there is a token that is unique, uniquely generated for that single piece. So that allows to kind of trace back originality of an artwork. And that's a very crucial part of selling a digital asset. And NFTs stand for non-fungible tokens. That means that once you generate that token it cannot be broken into several pieces you cannot sell one pixel of that artwork to somebody else because it's supposed to stay all (laughs) together so to say so yeah that's that's kind of the concept hope i explained it correctly (laughs) yeah so
0: i guess so also you can have millions of copies of that same image but only one of them is the authentic original and that's the one that has the nft associated with it right yeah it's really interesting and of course when people have these conversations that say you know artists shouldn't be doing this because it's you know environmentally unfriendly and it uses xyz amounts of energy overlooks the fact that when artists have exhibitions in other countries they have to put their work on planes they have to fly there people come in from all over the, exactly. you know in, in cars etc so there's you know obviously there's there seems to be some sort of trade-off there but it's an interesting spot i mean is digital artist something that is yet recognized as a thing that you can be in a way that because i know a long you know some years ago it really wasn't considered a legitimate right. uh, description
1: i think thanks to nfts is uh- weird to say this, but in some strange way, thanks to NFTs, I think digital art is becoming more of a a legitimate thing to do. But yeah, weirdly enough, I've had people, like I had exhibitions where I set up my work and physical exhibitions, like at the very beginning, I think 2018, where people came and saw my art and they said, how do you even make a living if you don't mind me asking? I was like, I was like, well, where do I I mean, where do I begin? I don't I don't make too much of a living, but I do what I love. But yeah, but also doing AI art is kind of a weird subset of digital art in itself. A large part of society still thinks that AI art is basically like you sitting in a room pushing a button and the AI does everything for you and that there's no human intervention there. So yeah, so it's kind of a clash of new things that, what's it called? There are new jobs that didn't exist some years ago, right? Sure. (laughs) My parents took a while to kind of understand what I was doing.
0: (laughs) But they're on board now?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So this question of AI and creativity is a, a really interesting one. Like you said, people imagine that you just press a button and and then, you know, a, a, a clever machine goes and does all the artwork for you. But also it raises this idea of the sort of the relationship between machine creativity, I guess this is the term. Is there a point at which there is actually some genuine creativity going on within the machine itself?
1: Right. I think a crucial part of creativity comes from iterations, like having so many iterations from an idea, from a single idea, and kind of exploring all the ramifications that one idea could have. And that's something where assisted creativity helps a lot. Like if I see, you know, I want to create a jellyfish arrangement of like tendrils and whatever on an image. I can kind of, with the generative art workflow, create a thousand, two thousand iterations if I want, and then choose from one of them. And there is something as well that I really love that Vera Molnar, who is one of the mothers of generative art, I would say, if not the mother of generative art, she says that there is something to the randomness, the element of randomness that really helps to the human creativity. So seeing something that one wasn't expecting to see suddenly can help a human think of something else. So yeah, I don't know if I'm making justice to her exact words, but I feel really inspired by that, that the element of randomness in what I do and kind of
0: Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that occurs to me is if your method is to put images into an algorithm, this is process these images and then generate something that you've learned from looking at those images and create a new image. I mean, I don't know how well I'm characterizing that, but that seems to be the process. I imagine the next step could be you take all of the ones that you've selected as works that you want to display and you feed them back into this algorithm and go, This is how Sophia Crespo thinks about art. Make me more Sophia Crespo artworks. Is that a possible next step? Definitely.
1: I mean, you could take all the works that I've done as a data set and then create something that, or you can predict what I will create next.
0: (laughs) So actually your greatest artwork could be a machine that generates your artworks.
1: (laughs) Definitely. But I personally think that to me, it is a personal exploration and there is a lot of work that the humans do. So in a way, I feel like it isn't the machine making the artwork for me. It is me making it and uh, using a tool that we haven't used long enough that we still kind of attribute lots of sentience to it in a way, but it isn't sentient at all so or at least that's how i see it you know we <laughs> had discussions about <laughs> this
0: <laughs> yeah not yeah, yet not yet that's yeah. really interesting so i i guess my other question would be the extent to which you're going deeper and deeper and deeper into a particular subject the sort of uh, relationship between computer life and biological life and how those things think about each other if you like uh, in a visual form do you think of that as going deeper and deeper and deeper into a subject as it kind of seems to me or are you going across and breadth and going like for instance today i'm doing caterpillars and butterflies and next week i'm doing frogs and you know lizards or, or is that your kind of domain and you're sort of tunneling down into it or are you going well what's going to take my curiosity next what's over there and could it go beyond biology i guess in that respect
1: It's both things together. On one extent, I feel like I took on a focus that like the nature and the relationship to nature in the digital space became my focus and it has brought me so much joy to work on that. I've had different artist faces where my focus point was completely different and it didn't bring me that much joy. (laughs) And... At some point, I kind of decided, okay, this is going to be my focus point. I'm happy with this. And I'm also curious to dive deeper onto it. So I feel like I'm constantly learning. I could learn tomorrow something new, and that would kind of spiral me down to create a new series dedicated to that. And at the same time, my work has become more human as well. Originally, I didn't want to talk very much about humans, but eventually I kind of ended up talking more about how humans represent data, about nature online, how we think of AI, what it represents in society. And it has slowly become more and more kind of social in a way, which I wasn't expecting at all. And now I'm even generating stories. Well, it's a collaboration. I'm not doing it alone. We're like a team, a collaborative team where we're generating stories, kind of like generative document, micro documentaries of one minute. And there we use like David Attenborough's AI voice to narrate them.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) So you're part of this collaborative team. Are you also part of an art scene? Is there a group of people around the world who do things that could be broadly categorised as a movement that you're part of?
1: I think it's a movement, yeah. I think like AI art is kind of the larger subset of digital arts and then there is also gradually more and more nature digital art like digital art that talks about nature and that opens up a conversation about it. And I've seen more and more of that, which makes me really happy. And yeah, because I don't think that nature and technology need to be separate from each other, that to experience nature, you have to be without any technology or that like, if you're experiencing technology, you cannot have nature in it. So, yeah, so I feel like that's definitely going to become an art movement if it isn't already.
0: What does success look like? How do you know when you're operating at kind of peak acclaim or peak uh, you know, success in terms of your art? I mean, is that already happening or is that something that you see as a particular goal that you'll know that's true when this, this and this are true?
1: So on a general level... Yes, it depends which day you ask me this question. If you ask me on a day where I have a million bugs to fix and nothing is working, I might say I don't feel like I reached success. But yeah, I think it's very social. Again, it's a feeling of being able to inspire others. It's a feeling as well of open up about something that I wanted that was important to me. So there's kind of a healing process as well. So that's kind of, in a way, art is a practice because you're constantly practicing it. And it feels like when you think you got good at it, you always need to keep practicing. So that's kind of like the fun of it, like learning continuously. And I don't have a specific point that I say, okay, when I reach that, I will stop. I imagine to keep like making art till the very last moment of my life,
0: <laughs> hopefully. And hopefully that's a long way away and not, uh, you know, at the other end of...
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> not the very lost
0: Exactly, exactly. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, it's really interesting. So, well, hopefully a long and, and healthy career... It's it's really good to talk to you, Sophia. You. I really appreciate you joining us for the podcast today, and uh, good luck with your um, police encounters and your <laughs> oh and your God. you know hospital runaway experience. At least you'll have a fantastic biography to write when uh, when people are doing a retrospective of your work.
1: <laughs> I heard that a few times. <laughs> thank you.
0: That's Sophia Crespo, and that's the MTF podcast. And if you're worried about her health, it's okay. I checked. It was a mystery. It went on for far too long, but she's feeling much better since that interview was recorded. You can find Sophia's work online at sophiecrespo91 on Instagram. I'm going to link to that in the show notes and sophiacrespo.com. I'm Dubber, at Dubber on Twitter, MTF Labs is at mtflabs.net and at MTF Labs all over social media. Thanks as always to the team, Sergio Castillo, Mars Starton Jen Kukuchka, Run Dreamer and to Faded Eon and Airtone for the music. That's it for this week. Stay safe, it's not all over yet and we'll talk soon. Cheers. <laughs>